0: Welcome to Samford University's campus worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. I want to spend as much time as I have talking about this much debated word, evangelical. It might not be an issue for you, but you might find it to be one before too long, and as you go forth from this place, even while you're here. So my title is really why I still call myself evangelical in spite of everything. Or evangelicalism is dead, long live evangelicalism. So a prelude, the first sentence or two is a prelude to this. This is the talk I would have given had I been invited to speak at the 2001 conference Evangelicals on the Sawdust Trail, which was held here at Beeson Divinity School. But I was not invited to speak. And I would say nobody like me was invited to speak either. So this is a bit updated, but essentially the same as I would have said had I spoken there. I did attend it, and it was a wonderful conference. Some of my very best students and most astute friends ask me why I still call myself evangelical in spite of what they perceive as a lack of fit between my theological orientation and the popular image of evangelical. Somehow, evangelical has come to be closely associated in the popular mind with an ultra-conservative approach to Christianity, one that is harshly judgmental, narrow-minded, inseparably related to conservative politics, and backward-looking rather than progressive. I begin by telling them that it isn't I who have changed. It's American evangelicalism that has changed and I'm just too stubborn to give up on the label that I've used for my particular Christian identity my whole life. And if they're Baptists, I ask them, why do you still call yourself a Baptist? There are problems with that too. I also explain to them that when I identify myself as evangelical, I'm referring to a particular Christian ethos and not really a movement. My own judgment as a theologian, or a historical theologian, is that the American evangelical movement is either dead Or hopelessly divided, but the spiritual theological ethos or spirituality that I call evangelical is still alive and well and it long predates the evangelical movement that now is probably dead and gone and will survive its demise. When I talk about evangelical as my spiritual theological identity, I mean this evangelical ethos. The evangelical movement as a relatively cohesive coalition is dead. It is dissolved into competing parties, each with its own expression of the evangelical ethos. Now to be sure there still exists uh, an evangelical affinity group, we'll call it that, but it's too large and too diverse to call it a movement anymore. The affinity in what was the movement is its ethos, but the affinity is too weak and admits too much opposition and competition to forge a, a coherent and cohesive movement and cement it together as it once was. According to evangelical historian George Marsden, the post-fundamentalist neo-evangelical movement that came together in the 1940s died out in 1976, but I think its last gasps were really in the 1990s. As the evangelical movement in America divided over politics, biblical inerrancy, the roles of women in the church and the family... God's attributes, Calvinism versus Arminianism, and postmodernity. As a historian of evangelicalism, I was not surprised by the movement's fragmentation and eventual demise because it was a combustible compound from the beginning. From the beginning it held within itself the seeds of its own destruction, and I mean especially its tendency to identify with Americanism and its obsession with opposing liberalism in every form. Those were the seeds of its eventual destruction. From the beginning, the American evangelical movement, which I grew up in, in the heart of it, my uncle was on the national board of the National Association of Evangelicals, and my father was an evangelical pastor for 52 years. The movement was symbolized by groups and individuals such as the Association of Evangelicals that was forged together in 1942, the Billy Graham Ministries, of course, Christianity Today, Fuller Theological Seminary, the many Grand Rapids, Michigan-based evangelical publishing houses, the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities. But it consisted, this movement consisted of two quite different visions of the essence of Christianity that simply were slapped together, held together by two common enemies, extreme fundamentalism on the right and liberalism of the mainline Protestant denominations on the left. So I grew up in the bosom of that evangelical movement and was educated in it, both in college and seminary. Later I studied the movement historically. I realized that it was from the very beginning composed of people and organizations with two very different competing paradigms of Christianity's essence. Historian Donald Dayton refers to them as the Presbyterian paradigm and the Pentecostal paradigm. And while agreeing with Dayton's basic analysis, I prefer to refer to the two paradigms as the Puritan Reformed Paradigm and the Pietist Pentecostal Paradigm. These two paradigms of evangelical Christianity were bound to clash, and clash they did, largely over how big and broad the evangelical tent should be, how inclusive it should be, and whether the constructive task of theology is finished or whether there is more light to break forth from God's Word so that constructive theology is always an ongoing task. The Puritan reformed paradigm crowd tend to view the stout and persistent theology of Charles Hodge, the conservative Calvinist Princeton theologian of the 19th century, as the summit and completion of evangelical theology, only to be translated into modern idiom, which many conservative evangelicals do in their systematic theologies, Wayne Grudem being an example. The Pietist Pentecostal crowd, out of their paradigm, tend to view spirituality as the essence of authentic Christianity, transformation rather than information, and reject any idea of a final closed system of doctrine that forms the inner core, the heart, the center, the essence of evangelicalism. Over the past 25 years or so, I've watched with somewhat of a heavy heart as the evangelical movement of my childhood, youth, and education has dissipated, if not evaporated, in a cloud of controversies over the, some of the things I mentioned, biblical inerrancy, which people cannot seem to define, predestination, women in ministry, God's foreknowledge, and the value, if any, of postmodernity for Christian theological renewal. I've also watched with sadness as the Puritan reform paradigm has grown in strength at the centers of evangelical theology, while the pietist Pentecostal paradigm, which I grew up in and was educated in, has tended to be marginalized and neglected, if not excluded from those centers of the evangelical movement. So my thesis is that the late great evangelical movement is dead and gone, but that the evangelical ethos that once energized it and unified it and served as its living center, is alive and well. And when I identify myself as evangelical, then I mean ethos-wise. So, departing from my manuscript for a moment, if someone comes up to me and asks, are you an evangelical? My immediate response is, how long do you have to talk? So it depends. This is my explanation of why I am an evangelical. So what is this evangelical ethos I'm talking about? This is how I view David Bebbington's and Mark Knowles' four hallmarks of evangelicalism. I think they're talking about its e- ethos, not the movement and its boundaries. First, according to those two historians of the evangelical movement, evangelicals share what they call biblicism, a general regard for scripture as the uniquely inspired written word of God. I would argue, however, that's what's unique about evangelical biblicism as distinct from say confessional Protestant Orthodox Biblicism is not inerrancy but love for the Bible. Evangelicals that I grew up with loved the Bible as the story of God with us. We didn't debate its inerrancy or infallibility, the subject that has come to divide evangelicals. In the words of theologian Hans Frey, for us the Bible absorbed the world. Ethos evangelicals are Christians who see the world through biblical lenses. So evangelical biblicism is a distinct kind of biblicism. It's not just sola scriptura in a formal sense. It's a very close, personal relationship with the Bible as God's message to us as our means of knowing God in a personal and intimate way. The evangelical ethos encourages Bible reading for devotion as well as study. It motivates Bible memorization and a strong desire for everyone to have the Bible in their own language. In a word, ethos evangelicals such as myself view the Bible's main purpose as transformation, not information, though it certainly contains information, but that's not its main purpose. Second, Bebbington and Noel identify conversionism as central to the evangelical ethos. The evangelical ethos is distinctive in the way it views salvation. In contrast to sacramental spirituality, evangelicalism, as a certain spiritual ethos, believes that a right, reconciled, and transforming relationship with God begins with a personal decision of repentance and faith. Evangelicals disagree about the nature of that decision, but all agree that authentic Christianity always includes it somewhere. A process may precede it and lead up to it, whether that be irresistible grace regenerating and bending a person's will, or prevenient grace enabling free acceptance of God's grace. But that a person must repent and trust in Jesus Christ to have authentic Christian life is part and parcel of the evangelical ethos. The point is often expressed in a folksy way that God has no grandchildren. Third, Bebbington and Noel point to another hallmark of the evangelical ethos they call crucicentrism, cross-centered proclamation and devotion, as an essential hallmark of authentic evangelicalism. Evangelicals are Christians who cling to the cross of Jesus Christ with faith. We sing about it, we preach it, we celebrate it, we reenact it. Evangelicals disagree among themselves about theories of the atonement, although some would say we shouldn't. Although by far the majority of self-identified evangelicals have historically affirmed objective atonement, that Christ's death had an effect on God and not just on people, changing the fundamental nature of the God-human relationship, thus making reconciliation and redemption possible. So the evangelical ethos is cross-centered. Fourth, Bevington and Noel regard activism in missions and evangelism and social transformation as essential to the evangelical ethos. Evangelicals have always been and are Christians who feel called to spread the gospel and help the poor and the suffering. The evangelical ethos is marked by a concern for the kingdom of God and its growth, or at least its approximation, before Christ returns through divine human cooperative effort in changing the world. So these are Bebbington's and Knowles' four hallmarks, much discussed, distinguishing features of what I'm calling the authentic evangelical ethos. In other words, evangelical is not merely Protestant, it is Protestantism energized with transforming personal experience of God. It is Protestantism on fire. To these four hallmarks, I add a fifth. Respect for the great tradition of Christian orthodoxy, especially as interpreted by the Reformation including the Anabaptists, which not all would include them in the Reformation. I do. Evangelicals have always been Orthodox Protestant Christians in the sense of having a high Christology, embracing a Trinitarian view of God, and believing in original sin and salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Evangelicals agree, however, that saving faith can never be merely notional. Intellectual. It always bears the fruit of Christ centered discipleship, obedience, and good works made possible by the indwelling and transforming Holy Spirit. So, this ethos, marked by these five common features, or well, we could call them family resemblances, is alive and well. Unfortunately, those who share it tend to emphasize and underscore their differences about the details, such as the exact nature of biblical accuracy how many years ago cr- God created the earth, whether, it should be regard- whether the Bible should be regarded as strictly inerrant or infallible in matters of faith and practice. Other differences that divide those of us who share the evangelical ethos were mentioned earlier, women in ministry, post-modernity, the attributes of God. There's no need to dwell on them here. Suffice it to say that it now seems unlikely to me, perhaps impossible, that these differences will allow a reunion of evangelicals back into a even relatively cohesive movement. These five hallmarks of the evangelical ethos constitute my particular brand of evangelicalism. I wholeheartedly embrace them for myself, and that's why I consider myself an evangelical in spite of everything wrong with evangelicalism as a movement, including its demise as a movement, and the mistaken popular association of the word evangelical with the religious right, conservative politics, and reactionary social activism. It seems to me that one great rift among evangelicals that has opened up in the last 25 years or so and underlies much else about which evangelicals disagree has to do with the authority of tradition. Reacting to perceived doctrinal drift among evangelicals, some evangelical leaders have turned to tradition to shore up and reinforce evangelicalism's identity. These evangelicals perceive an identity crisis at the heart of evangelicalism. They're right, but in my opinion, they are part of the problem. Why? Because they tend to regard right doctrine as the enduring permanent essence of evangelical identity. For them, as for Carl Henry, the quote, dean of evangelical theologians, according to Time magazine, at least in his later years, evangelicalism is primarily a mental category defined by firm cognitive boundaries. As these evangelicals perceive these boundaries loosening and in danger of dissolving, they and others influenced by them have appealed to one of two distinct visions of evangelical tradition. And as a result, I believe, have hardened evangelical categories into a kind of rigid traditionalism that repels all creativity and ongoing reform. One of these visions of evangelical tradition is sometimes called Paleo-Orthodoxy. Its champions have been great men, great theologians, such as Thomas Oden, my friend Christopher Hall, and my colleague Daniel Williams. The gist of this is that Christians, including, of course, all evangelicals, are not free to interpret Scripture, apart from and especially not against the ancient ecumenical tradition of the church fathers. Thomas Oden has expressed this in many writings, but most succinctly in his book, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy, published in 2003. Oden, Hall, and Williams all affirm sola scriptura, scripture above tradition, but they also argue that scripture should never be separated from tradition or interpreted against tradition. And by tradition, they mean the Catholic and Orthodox tradition of the first seven to eight centuries of the undivided church. And This is a kind of evangelical Catholicism. The second traditionalism of conservative evangelicals is what some, including Millard Erickson, with whom I taught at Bethel for many years, called the received evangelical tradition. Wayne Grudem offers a list of its exponents at the beginning of his systematic theology. They include Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, and especially theologians who follow in that train, those who are faithful to the old Princeton school of Reformed Orthodoxy, almost all of them conservative Calvinists. This is a modern evangelical tradition perceived to be faithful to the Reformers. The evangelicals of the Gospel Coalition are among those who seem to hold to the authority of this evangelical tradition as the hermeneutical litmus test for proper interpretation of Scripture and therefore of all authentic evangelicalism. So what's the practical point of my identifying these two evangelical traditionalisms? Just this, according to these conservative evangelicals, authentic evangelical theology's only tasks are critical and contextual. That is, theology's task is to defend tradition and translate it into contemporary idioms. The constructive task of theology then, its creative task, to them is closed and finished. Doctrines are not to be revised. Rarely do moderate mediating evangelicals put it quite so starkly, but their reactions to evangelical attempts to revise traditional doctrines such as God's omniscience or justification by faith reveal their sympathies with evangelical traditionalism. Let's look at these two case studies. The first case study is open theism. Open theism is the belief among some evangelicals, although many conservative evangelicals would say they're no longer evangelicals, that the future is partly open, underdetermined, and that even God cannot know with absolute certainty events nothing has yet decided or settled. Conservative evangelical traditionalists such as Tom Oden and Al Mohler have condemned open theism as a heresy. Moderate mediating theologians have labeled it a deep deviation, presumably from the received evangelical tradition. I conclude that at least in some cases, these conservative and moderate evangelicals made up their minds against open theism before even studying it simply because it's new. Some of them have publicly stated that the weight of tradition is so against open theism that it isn't even worthy of serious consideration no matter how seemingly compelling the biblical and philosophical reasons for it might be. The second case study is N.T. Wright's Revisions of the Traditional Reform Doctrine of Justification by Faith. This is spelled out in several articles and books, but nowhere better than in his 2009 volume, Justification, God's Plan and Paul's Vision*. There, the great British evangelical scholar N.T. Wright concludes that justification is not the imputation of Christ's righteousness on account of individual faith, but the accounting of one as righteous, as forgiven, based on inclusion in the people of God and on the faith of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, it isn't about individualized salvation at all. It's about the creation of God's new family and the extending of God's purposes out into the wider world. As everyone knows who's been paying any attention to happenings in evangelical theology, Wright's revisions have resulted in hysterical screaming from conservatives, especially those associated with the gospel coalition. And much of that is in defense of tradition. This is what we've always believed. Don't mess with it. Wright defends his revisionist project by saying, quote, God always has more light and truth to break forth from his holy word. And if the light comes and can be shown to come from the word, from scripture itself, there is no tradition so strong, venerable, or previously fruitful that the new light should not come forth and we should not be prepared to learn from it. That scares a lot of people. Open theism and Wright's revision of the doctrine of justification are two examples of what I've called post-conservative evangelicalism, belief that the constructive task of theology, its creative task, is still open and ongoing, and that no doctrine of tradition is so sacrosanct that it cannot be reconsidered and amended, this is important, in light of fresh and faithful interpretation of Scripture. Critics of post-conservative evangelicalism have often portrayed it as, quote, worshiping the goddess of novelty, as I was told, or following the lure of unfettered innovation. They see it as opening a Pandora's box of confusion and accommodation to culture. They see it as the beginning, if not the middle, of a slippery slope leading down to out-and-out theological liberalism, the wreck of the so-called mainline Protestant denominations. For them, the best protection against that downhill slide is the absolute closure of theological openness, saying a definite nine, in German, no, as Bart did to Bruner, to theological creativity among evangelicals. The problem with this reaction is, of course, an ironic contradiction with one of the hallmarks of the evangelical ethos, biblicism. As defined by Nolan Bebbington. In order to defend and protect the received evangelical tradition, which often means Charles Hodges' systematic theology, and fend off perceived liberal accommodation, conservative evangelicals are willing, sometimes even openly, to accommodate reformed biblicism, sola scriptura, scripture above tradition, to a kind of Catholicizing tendency, where tradition is equally authoritative with the Bible itself. Rarely do conservative evangelicals admit this, but this tendency appears in their frequent appeals to tradition against even fresh and faithful biblical interpretation. One of my evangelical mentors of an earlier generation, when I was about most of your age, was Bernard Ram, a hero of what I call post-conservative evangelicals, such as myself and my friend the late Stanley Grenz and others. Ram was fond of saying to evangelicals, this is a quote, "...let's remember that it is just as possible to sin to the right as to the left." In other words, suspicion, criticism, and knee-jerk rejection of all innovation and creativity in biblical scholarship and theology can be just as damaging as uncritical love of novelty and innovation. Somehow, if the spirit, if the evangelical spirit, what I'm calling the evangelical ethos, ethos, is going to survive and be the salt and light in our world that it can be, we evangelicals have to overcome our petty squabbles, discover and build a new evangelical ecumenism, a big tent evangelicalism. We need to value our particularities, such as Calvinism and Arminianism, without beating each other up over them and learn to put secondary doctrinal, moral, and ethical issues on the back burner where they belong, and rediscover our spiritual heritage of Jesus-centered piety closely related to generous Christian orthodoxy, and recover from paranoia towards science and culture. And we need to shed every hint of judgmental triumphalism. Can the the late great evangelical movement of the 1950s through the 1970s or 1990s be revived? Or is it gone forever? I doubt that it can be revived, and I suspect it is a thing of the past. In my opinion, it would take another Billy Graham to revive it. To a very large extent, it was centered around him and his ministries anyway. We will have to learn to live with a shattered, fragmented evangelicalism and focus our attention and energy on keeping alive the evangelical spirit, the evangelical ethos among us. It will take many different expressions and we will need to learn to live with the different expressions. Only when we think there is such a thing as the evangelical movement does diversity among evangelicals cause consternation and confusion among us. Once we're disabused or we've disabused ourselves of that notion that there is a cohesive movement and there's a pope somewhere in it, we just haven't identified who it is yet, perhaps we can get on with the business of being evangelicals in our own distinct ways and accept others as equally evangelical without trying to make them conform to some stereotype of our own imagining and our own invention. Amen. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.